Today we're going to go to Luke chapter 4. Turn to Luke chapter 4 with me. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of Luke now for the last couple months, just verse by verse, looking at what does God's word say and what do we do with that? How do we know Jesus? How do we believe who Jesus was through uh, the revelation of God's word? So today we're going to do that again in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Um, looking at this next section here, um, entitled, How Jesus Fought the Devil and Won. Um, I think I, I need some of that in my life. I hope you need some of that in your life. Um, and so Jesus is going to teach us a few things today about what it means to resist the devil. So we'll do that from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Um, it was a uh, stifling hot morning uh, one August in Hiroshima, Japan. Many people were already evacuating their homes, moving out belongings, trying to get to safety because Hiroshima at that point was one of the only cities, major cities in Japan that had not yet experienced a raid in the middle of that war. And um, they expected the Allied forces to hit it any day. And about halfway through the morning, Saturday morning, the air raid siren came on and it was going across the city through the airwaves and people started frantically trying to get out. But then just a couple couple minutes later, the all-clear sound came across, and they said, you know, it's not, it's okay, it's a false alarm, no big deal, because the radio operators had looked out, and they'd only seen, they only saw three American planes coming, and they are like, oh, this isn't actually an attack, they're probably just doing surveillance or whatever, like, there's not enough there for a bombing. What they didn't know was that within a few minutes of that, they would drop the first atomic bomb and kill tens of thousands of people. But they weren't ready they didn't understand the severity of what was coming. And the same thing happens to us sometimes in our Christian lives is we start to forget or underestimate or don't understand the severity of what comes against us and we're unprepared when it comes time for battle. And so today we're going to learn from Jesus about this enemy that we have called Satan, that he is vicious, that he is determined and if we let our guard down, he will strike. And today we're going to learn from his example, Jesus' example, both a stern warning when it comes to spiritual warfare and also a really serious battle plan that we can put in place. And so here's kind of the main idea we're going to talk about this morning. The devil is coming. Prepare for battle. The devil is coming for you, for your family. For your church. So we must prepare for battle. So let's look at verse 1. It starts off, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Point number one. To resist temptation, be led by the Spirit. So when it starts off here, it says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know from last week when we studied uh, Jesus' baptism that he, he received the Holy Spirit as baptism, right? It came down in the form of a dove, rested on him, remained on him, it tells us in John 1, verse 33. And so much like Jesus received the Holy Spirit at his baptism, we as Christians get to receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, Scripture tells us that he comes down, he lives inside of us at the moment of salvation. Ephesians 1.33 tells us that, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that he dwells within us on a permanent basis from that point forward. 
But here it doesn't say that Jesus received the Holy Spirit, that he had the Holy Spirit. It says he was full of the Holy Spirit. Right? That's a different word. That's a different meaning here. Being filled with the Holy Spirit's power is more than just receiving him and his presence at salvation. As believers, we are, we are to be repeatedly filled with the power of the Holy Spirit as we walk with him and in God's word. We did a whole series in our church on the Holy Spirit last year called Holy Spirit Come. We had a whole message on what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if you have questions about that, I'm going to touch on a little bit this morning, but I can't do the whole thing again. So if you, if you need some more context for that, if you need some more understanding of that, you can go, that's on our website. It's available to you. I would encourage you to go listen to that and see if that can be helpful to you as well. But just real briefly this morning, a key verse here that we can talk about is Ephesians 5.18, which says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul's making a comparison here, right? So today, if someone has had too much to drink, or if they've been abusing substances in some way, we would say that they are under the influence. Or that's, the, that's the phrase we use, that they were under the influence at that time. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, don't, instead of being under the influence and being controlled by worldly things like alcohol or drugs or food or money or power or whatever your thing of choice is. He says instead of being influenced and controlled by those things, as believers we are called to be under the influence or under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be full of the Spirit, to be completely surrendered to His control. And so right here it says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. So how can we be full of the Holy Spirit like Jesus was as he goes out into the wilderness. There's three kind of steps, there's three things that we must do on a continual basis to be filled and be full of the Holy Spirit. The first one is to confess. 1 John 1.19 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Anytime we sin, it puts a wall between us and God, Right? Not that we're unsaved at that point or we're going to hell or we've lost uh, that, that, that eternal security from him, but the relationship is broken, right? Like the connection that we have with him is blocked by the sin that lies between us and a holy God. And we have to tear down that wall of sin and that wall of, of separation through confession and repentance of sin so that the Holy Spirit can restore that relationship and the power of God can flow into our lives once again. And so first we have to confess. Secondly, we have to ask. It comes from Luke 11, 11 through 13. It says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What Jesus is saying here is that God is the perfect father, Right? And as a perfect father, he loves to give the best gifts to his children when we sincerely ask. And the best gift that he can give us is nothing of this world. It is the gift of himself, his presence, which comes through the Holy Spirit indwelling us and filling us with his power. But in order to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit's power, we have to be seeking God and asking God to lead us and to walk with us and keeping that connection with him through 
prayer and through asking. And then thirdly, so we confess, we ask, and then lastly, yield. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. At salvation, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you surrender all control of your life, of your body, of everything to God. And Paul says that happens because Jesus is the one who paid the price to redeem you. He paid the price for your sins on the cross, and therefore you now belong to him. That's what salvation is. And the proof of that, the proof of God's ownership, is not only our faith in Jesus, but the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us, to take up residence in us as the temple of God. But we still have to yield to his presence and to his power on a daily basis because we have this other thing inside of us called the flesh that wants us to yield to sin. It's constantly pulling us and and calling us to yield ourselves to the things of this world. And the Holy Spirit is saying, no, you need to yield yourself to me, to the power of God in your heart and in your life. And as we yield, the Holy Spirit fills us afresh with his power and leads us just like he did here with Jesus. So first we need to be full of the Holy Spirit. But then look what it says next. Not only was he full, he was led by the Spirit. Specifically, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, which was basically like, like kind of the more barren, desertish part of the area, right? Where nobody really lived, where there wasn't really any vegetation. Like that was out where, you know, in the sticks, if we would say today, okay? And so he went out there, he led him out of the wilderness for 40 days. All alone. Just him and God. For over a month. And while he was there for 40 days, all alone, it says he was being tempted by the devil. Number one nemesis. Right? I just kind of picture this like if this was like a movie. This section right here would be like the lead up scene to the, like the montage leading up to the big fight. Right? Like Jesus is like knelt down like tying his sandals and he's like running through the desert with the sun beating down he's like air boxing like like this is like the lead up to like the fight is coming and the spirit is leading him out into this battle with satan but notice here this is really interesting this wasn't satan picking a fight with jesus this wasn't satan luring him into a trap This was initiated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the one who led him into the wilderness to be tempted. This was God's doing. Now some would point to that and be like, well, does that mean that God was tempting Jesus to sin? No, we know that James 1.13 tells us that God tempts no one. He can have no part of sin as a holy God, but... There are times where he allows us, he allows our faith to be tested, sometimes through temptation of Satan. And so it is one of the times here where Jesus is led out, he is sent to a remote place where his only real resource is God alone. He has to be completely dependent on God to see him through this test. He's isolated for a long time. No people, no food, it's taxing on his mind, it's taxing on his body. 
And for 40 days, it says he was being tempted. In the Greek, it's a present participle, meaning it's a continuous action. That the whole 40 days he was being tempted by Satan. Luke's going to give us three examples of that, but that wasn't the only three. For 40 days, there was continuous temptation upon him through this, what we would call the testing of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about that for just a second, because I think that is a category of spiritual formation that most Christians today do not have a theology for. We don't think about or understand the testing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Many believers today, when, they try to, when we try to discern God's will, when we try to, to discern God's direction for our lives, like, God, what do you want me to do, and what, what's next, and anytime we're looking for God to lead us into something, we're only looking for good things, right? We're only looking for positive things, we're only looking for easy things, like, obviously, like, if God loves me and I'm his son, then he's only going to lead me into what makes me comfortable and happy and good, right? That's kind of the way we think about it. And if it's something bad, we're like, oh, that can't be from God. That must be from Satan. Like, God would only lead me into good things. But the Bible actually says the opposite. That sometimes, oftentimes, just like with Jesus, if we're really filled with the Spirit, if we're really following the Spirit, sometimes he's going to lead us into really hard places, to walk through some really tough struggles. Because his purpose is not to make us comfortable. His purpose is to grow our faith in Jesus Christ. And because we're human, and because we're naturally prideful, oftentimes the only way we'll get dependent on the Lord and really allow him to grow our faith is when we're struggling. And so he'll lead us into hard things so that we can grow our faith in him. That's what he's doing here with Jesus. Taking us to a place of surrender at a deeper level where we trust God more than we ever have before. Through strife and struggling and testing. Also notice that this type of spiritual temptation and testing oftentimes will follow come right on the heels of a spiritual high in our lives, right? Jesus just came off of this baptism experience where, like, God spoke to him and the Holy Spirit came down, and, like, this was like a high-water moment in his life spiritually at this point. And right on the heels of that comes 40 days of temptation. Because oftentimes, right after the high points is when we're most susceptible to attack. Because we let our guard down, right? We're like, man, I'm doing awesome. Like, this is really going good, and things are going great. And maybe we get a little prideful, maybe we get a little puffed up, and we think, oh, I got this, and God's with me. And, and we let our guard down, and then all of a sudden, Satan just wants to pounce on that. Oftentimes, your periods of greatest spiritual struggle in your life will come right after a victory. And so it is here with Christ. Also notice that in times of testing, the Holy Spirit will often remove our most basic comforts, even sometimes our needs, in order to make us depend more on the Lord. In the wilderness, it says Jesus ate nothing. Over in Matthew's account of this, verse four, or chapter 4, verse 2, tells us that the Holy Spirit led him to fast, specifically. This was intentional. No food for 40 days. 
That is big time, right? And again, we talked about it last week. Don't, don't just assume like, oh yeah, he can do that because he's like, you remember, he's God, right? So he can do the 40 days without food. He's not like us. No, he was 100% human. And no food for 40 days. Why would the Spirit put Jesus through that? You ever think about that? Like, why would he, doesn't God love us? Why would he make us go through a hard, painful experience? Right here, the Spirit is using Jesus' hunger for food to remind him and to spur him on for a greater hunger and reliance on the Lord. That's what fasting does. Also, I think it's interesting here that 40 days, Luke doesn't make the direct connection for us, but we can tell by the way that Jesus responds to Satan later on that there's an illusion here being made. His 40 days is a parallel to Israel's 40 years that they spent in the wilderness leading up to the promised land. And if you remember that story, God had originally said, go straight in, right? This is your land. Go in, take the land. But they got scared and they didn't trust God. And they disobeyed God. He said, all right, fine. Then you can just, you know, do some circles for 40 years. And then we'll figure this thing out later, right? And so he used that 40 years to test them. To test their hearts. To make them learn to rely on him and trust him before they entered into the promised land. To grow a hunger in them for God that they didn't have before. They had to rely solely on God for all of their needs, the manna and the water and the, right, all of it. God, they didn't have anything. And where Israel failed to trust God, here, Jesus will succeed. He will follow the Spirit all the way through the test, all the way through the temptation. Sorry, spoiler alert. He makes it. Okay? But it's this picturing of a contrast, right? Between those who trust the Lord and those who don't. And the difference is being led by the Spirit. Think about that for just like in real life for a second. Think like, can you imagine 40 days without food? 40 days. Like I'm if we're just being honest this morning, most of us can't go 40 minutes. Right, by the end of the sermon, you're already like, man, I could, I could eat. Like, that's, right? Like, we're, we're not wired that way. It, I think I've, I've done some fasting in the past. I think the longest I've fasted that I can remember, I think, is three days. That was a long time. Like, three days felt like forever. He did 40. And we all know when we don't eat how we get, right? Around our house, we call it hangry, right? Like, that's. Like, I am much more tempted to sin. I'm much more prone to sin when I haven't eaten. I'm more irritable. I get angry easier. I'm impatient. Right? Like, it, it, it creates, it creates a, a vacuum, right, in us that then we're looking for some way to, to feed it, and it just brings things out of us, and, and God uses it to show us things and to, to change us and to bring things to our attention, But in those moments when I'm responding in sin, it's because I'm not being led by the Spirit. Because I'm letting my flesh take over. 
I'm not being influenced or controlled by the Spirit. I'm being influenced and controlled by my desires, specifically for food. And if we're going to resist temptation, we have to stay filled with the Spirit, submitted to the Spirit, influenced by the Spirit over everything else. And so the first thing we learn here is to submit to the Spirit even, here's, here's the tricky part, even when it requires sacrifice. Mm. We love in church to talk about the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. We love the Holy Spirit come and we sing the songs and we do the thing. And we're like, yeah, as long as it's good stuff. And then as soon as he says, hey, I want you to make this sacrifice, you're like, oh, okay. Am I willing to submit to the Spirit even when it requires sacrifice? That's what we see with Jesus. But then look how it transpires here. He gives us these next three accounts of his temptation. Look at verse 3. So the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Point number two, to resist temptation, live by God's word. Live by God's word. So Luke provides us here with three specific examples of how Jesus was tempted during these 40 days. And now these temptations, okay, you got to understand, these temptations are unique to Jesus. And they're unique to Jesus because he's the only one who could actually do them. Right? Like if Satan came up and tried to tempt me, like, hey, you're hungry, turn that rock into bread. That's not a temptation for me because I can't do it. Right? Like, that's, uh, like that's not going to help me, like that's not going to hurt me at all if he says that. So Satan's really good at knowing us and knowing our desires and knowing our, our bends, and he tailors our temptations to who we are. And so he's tailoring Jesus' temptations to who he is here, his power, his abilities, his, right? But he does tend to tempt us in the same categories of temptation, regardless of who we are. The flavor of it's a little bit different. The way he goes about it is different because we're different people. But they pretty much fall in the same categories. And there's three categories of temptation that, that he's throwing at Jesus here that I think we can, we can evaluate for ourselves as well. Okay? So number one is appetites. It says the devil said to him. Now this was really interesting this week as I was studying. I never caught this before. Notice that Satan starts with a voice. Right? He doesn't necessarily see him. He doesn't like show up in a form. He just talks to him. He just, Jesus just hears his voice. And so at this point, if you're, again, Jesus is a human, so he's like, okay, well, whose voice is that? Is that God's voice speaking to me? Is that my own head, just my own voice thinking to me? Is that my stomach speaking to me? Because it could use some food right now. Like, like, who's talking here? Because just previous to this, what did he hear at his baptism? A voice. From heaven, 
And so Satan is trying to disguise himself. He's trying to trick Jesus and be like, hey, here's another voice. Maybe you'll listen to this one as well, right? And he's trying to disguise himself here as God in speaking to Jesus in this way. Which is, the first thing we need to learn about Satan and the way that he works is that Satan masquerades. You know this, right? 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He disguises himself as light to try to trick us into doing what he wants us to do. So he's masquerading here in a voice to Jesus, trying to get him to go in the wrong direction. And look what he says. He says, if you are the son of God, which is, again, a direct callback to what just happened at his baptism. What did God tell him? You are my beloved son. He's like, oh, really? All right, if you're the son of God, right, then prove it, right? You've been out for 40 days. You're starving, right? You need to eat. Like, we're human. You're going to die if you don't eat. We all have to eat. Here's some stones. Just turn those things into bread, right? If you're really the son of God, there's no reason you need to be out here like this, suffering. Just make some bread up and have a meal. And again, in our humanity, we could really justify that. Like, yeah, of course, God loves me, right? Like, he doesn't want me to be starving out here. Like, I can just eat some bread, it would have been easy for us, or for Jesus, to, to think, that, okay, maybe this is God speaking to me. So how does he sound, how does he know that this isn't the Lord? How does he know that it's a trick? Look at how he responds. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus knew that this wasn't God's voice because he compared it to God's word. He knew that God would never say anything that would contradict what he had already said through the word. That was the source of truth. That was his checking point. And he quotes here scripture back to Satan, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which refers to Israel. When they were in the desert, when they were in the wilderness, when they were desiring food more than God. They're like, why did you bring us out here to die? We need to eat. Just send us back to Egypt. We'd rather be slaves and eat well than be out here with the Lord. He's like, oh yeah, you don't live by bread alone. And so Jesus is telling Satan here, there is more to life than just human appetites. There's more to life than your desires. There's more to life even than your needs. That's where it gets tricky. It's like, oh, I got to eat. I got I to gotta, I gotta live. God's saying, yes, you do, and I've got that, but there's more to your life than just surviving. Jesus desired God more than he desired his own appetites. And so the question before us is, what appetites does Satan tempt you with? Again, we're all different. We all have different appetites. We have different desires. We have different passions right? What ones does Satan come at you with? Where are your weak points where he knows he can tempt you because this is a natural appetite for you? We need to be on guard for that. Sometimes it's even a need, and that's how we justify it, right? Well, I got to have this to live. I got to have this for my family. I got to have this to pay the bills, and so we justify these appetites of ours because we say they're a need when we're really just functioning in a level of pride and self-trusting rather than trusting the Lord.
The second area that he tempts Jesus is worship. He comes to him again. He says, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world. So he shows all the kingdoms, all this power, all this glory of the entire world. He says, I will give it all to you. Now, the first question is, can Satan even do that? Right? Does he even have the power, the authority to do that? Well, we have a couple verses that help. First John, First John 5.19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's Satan. Okay? 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that he calls, uh, Paul calls him the God of this world. That's referring to Satan, meaning the, the ruler of this world. So in one sense, yeah, he kind of does. He has a level of authority over the things of this world that he can use at his discretion. But notice the way he phrases it. This is, this is Satan. He's so tricky. He says, all this authority, all this power, he says, it's been delivered to me. Meaning it's not naturally his. Right? It was given to him. His authority is a derived authority, and therefore it's still subject to the ultimate authority, which is God himself. This is why Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. He's not the king, he's the prince. He's not the big G God, he's the little G God of this world. Right? He is under the authority, it is limited, it is temporal, as God has allowed it, him to have it for now. Which leads us to the second thing that we need to know about Satan, is that Satan lies. <laughs> Hopefully you already knew that one, but just in case you didn't, Satan lies to you. Jesus tells us this in John 8, He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. No truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. At his very core, Satan is a liar. He trades in half-truths, and he tries to entice us into temptation by twisting the truth to fit his needs. He's a liar. And here's the lie. He says, I will give all of it to you if you will worship me. It's an utter lie. Because to worship something is to give it supreme glory in your life. And whatever you are worshiping owns you. And so it wouldn't belong to Jesus. It would actually still belong to Satan because now Jesus has submitted himself to Satan in worship. And look how Jesus responds again. The exact same starting phrase. He says, it is written. Once again, he returns right back to God's word. Right back to the source of truth for his life. He quotes, quotes Deuteronomy 6.13 here. He says, you shall worship and serve God alone, not yourself, not the vain glory of this world that it has to offer. And again, this is pointing back to Israel here in Deuteronomy, that when they finally made it to the promised land, after 40 years in the desert, they finally get there, right? And they became this really prosperous people, and they take over the land, and they become this great nation, and everybody's like, you know, thinks how, how good they are and how awesome they are, and they kind of get puffed up, and they turn inward. And they start glorifying themselves and glorifying their own nation rather than glorifying God. 
And how easy is it for us when we really feel like things are going awesome to make it all about us and not about the Lord? And so as Jesus tells them, tells Satan, no one is worthy of worship except God alone. It all comes from him. And so he deserves the worship. What else are you tempted to worship? What else are you tempted to value in this life more than Jesus? What are you tempted to give glory to? What are you, what are you tempted to live for and to spend yourself on other than the Lord? Those are the things that you worship. Jesus said, only God is worthy of our worship. So the second category was worship. The third category of temptation is control. So on the third attempt, Satan, it says, it took him to the, the top of the temple. And he said, if you're really the son of God, so he's going back to that again, like if you're really the son of God, then throw yourself down from here. Let's just test drive this little status of yours, right? Let's just see who's really in control of your life, who's really got the power. If you think you're all that, then just like take a nosedive and let's see what happens. But notice what Satan does now. He changes his tactic. He says, throw yourself off the temple because it is written. Jesus said it twice now. So he's like, all right, I can do that too, right? And, and he's... He's getting ready to quote scripture. He's getting ready, Satan is getting ready to quote the Bible to Jesus. And some of you are like, I didn't know Satan knew the Bible. Yes, he does. He knows it better than most of us, and he will use it and try to flip it on you every chance he gets. It's when we have to know it better. And he quotes here to Jesus Psalm 91, 11 and 12. And he quotes it right, quotes the right words. But he quotes it out of context, which is what he usually does with it, right? Because this text in Psalm 91 has nothing to do with the Son of God, has nothing to do with the Messiah, nothing to do with promises to him. It's actually written to God's people who need to trust in him for refuge, who need to trust in him for help, not test him to see if he's really legit, like what Satan is telling Jesus to do here. And so Satan attempts to, to twist the scripture in a false meaning to trip Jesus up, which leads us to the third thing we need to know about Satan is that Satan schemes. Satan schemes. He's always looking for a way to, to twist it and to trick us into temptation, even using God's word. That's why Paul in Ephesians 6.11 says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's what he does. Paul says, your defense against his schemes is the armor of God, more specifically, the sword of the Spirit, which all the good church Sunday school kids said is the Word of God. Right? What's, say, what, I'm sorry, what's Jesus been using this entire time to defend himself against the temptation of Satan? The Word of God. So we see Jesus wield the sword one more time here. 
And he quotes more scripture. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. Speaking of Israel's encounter with God at Massa when they had no water and they quarreled with God, right? They tried to test God and say, all right, you brought us out here. If you're really God, then we need some water, right? We were dying of thirst out here. Either give us some water or send us back to Egypt. And herein, in that picture, lies the third temptation. Will I trust God or will I test God? What's your heart prone to do when things get tough? When, when you're in a struggle, when, when you don't know what to do, when there's not an answer, when you're fearful, when things are falling apart... Do you trust God or do you try to test God? Do you believe the promise of his word? Do you believe his power? Do you believe his provision? Or do you say, God, prove it to me? Prove it to me again, God. Right? You got you to do something. You got to show up. Then I'll believe. Jesus never stopped trusting God. And therefore, he submitted to his control. Do you trust God or test God? Do you believe his word? Or do you wait until he proves it to you before you step out in faith? Three temptations, three categories come to all of us. Appetites, worship, control. But here's what I, want to know, here's what I really want to point out. Notice the common thread through all three of these temptations. Look at your Bibles. Look at the red, if you have a red letter Bible, look at the red letters. Jesus' only words in this entire section are what? Scripture. He doesn't use any of his own words. He doesn't try to come up with his own explanation or his own defense. The only thing he says, the only thing he has to say is scripture. That's the power of God's word. He doesn't use logic or emotion or self-help. Right? Today, there's, a, there's a, a theory out there, if you will, that says most of us, when, when trials come, when conflict comes, when struggles come to us, that we respond in one of three major ways. We're either thinkers, feelers, or doers. Thinkers want to respond with logic, and I'm just going to fix the puzzle, and I'm going to solve it, and I'm going to figure it out, and I'm just going to think my way through this, right? Feelers are all about the emotions, and like, I, I'm just going to figure out how to emotionally navigate through this with relationships and all the things, and connecting, and, and then the doers are like, I don't want to think or feel anything, just, I just want to put my head down and run, right? Like, let's just get through this, and I'll just do what I got to do, and get on the other side of it, and be done with all of this, and they just go straight to action. I think that's, there's some truth to that. I think all three, I think, you know, different people respond in the, one of those three ways oftentimes. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that's not what we need. When temptation comes, when it's spiritual attack, we don't need to be thinkers, feelers, or doers. We need to be reliers, relying on the word of God, the power of God to work in us and through us in ways that we can't do. I cannot resist the temptation of Satan on my own. Only God's word gives me the power for that. That's how Jesus fought the devil and won. 
and it'll work for us as well. Know God's word, believe God's word, and live God's word. There's one more verse we've got to deal with still. Look at verse 13. It says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Point number three, to resist temptation, stay alert at all times. Two just real quick notes on this verse, okay? One, notice it says the devil, when the devil had ended every temptation. Think about this. Jesus had to walk through every possible temptation that Satan could throw at him. Every temptation that we experience over an entire lifetime, Jesus weathered in 40 days. Every temptation. And sometimes I think we're tempted, to, tempted, sometimes I think we are quick to think that Jesus does not experience the same level of temptation that we experience because, you know, he was God and all, right? But if we think about this through the lens of temptation, Jesus actually experienced temptation at a greater level and a greater intensity than any of us ever experience. Because when we're tempted, eventually, we usually fall and give in. Jesus never did. So he experienced a level of temptation that goes past the point that we fail and fall. And so next time you're tempted by the evil one, remember, Jesus gets it. Jesus has walked through every temptation that you can walk through in an even greater and stronger way than you're experiencing right now. And he's with you. And in his power, through his word, you can walk through it as well. But then it says, Satan departed until an opportune time. So even after Satan had thrown everything he had at Jesus, for 40 days, everything he had, and Jesus won, it tells us here that Satan still didn't quit. He's like, all right, fine. I'll go for now. But you know I'm coming. I'm coming back. This isn't over, me and you, right? And the same is true for us today. The devil never quits. He is relentless in his attacks. He is tempting us to sin every moment of every day, and he looks for opportune times, both in the low points in our life and in the high points of our life. Anytime our guard is down, he is looking for opportune times to attack us. When we're tired, when we're celebrating, when we feel like we're being attacked from others, when we are on top of the world, when we are betrayed, when we are bored, when we are physically weak, anytime our guard is down, he's looking for opportune times. And we know that Jesus had lots of moments like that, didn't he? If you read Jesus' life, how many times was he attacked, betrayed, physically exhausted, tired, the most severe obviously being the cross. That day when the perfect Son of God went to the cross to bear the burden of our sins. 
He never sinned. We sin all the time. He said, okay, I'll take that. And he went to the cross, and he died in our place for our sins. And he went to the grave. And you know, you know when he died and they put him in that grave, man, Satan was dancing. He thought he had won. He thought, he, I finally got him. And then God comes through once again, delivers Jesus from death, brings him out of the grave, and all of us who believe in him are delivered as well. Delivered from death, delivered from sin, and yes, even delivered from Satan. You see, we've already won the battle through faith in Jesus Christ. But until he returns and puts that final blow, Satan's going to keep coming after us. He will not quit. So the fight continues even though the battle's already been won. So I'll just close with this. I think we just need to say it out loud. Because I think we just get twisted on this sometimes in church today. Spiritual warfare is real. It is. And we can go to both ends of the spectrum. Okay, I'm not saying like don't, don't overemphasize it to a point where you live in constant fear. Right? That's not from the Lord. He's not giving us a spirit of fear. That's not... That's not what he wants for us. But at the same point, we can't minimize it so much that we ignore it as if it has no effect or impact on us, and then we're not on guard against the temptations that will come. Satan is real. Scripture says that he is a roaring lion looking to devour you and your faith and your family and your church. So we have to stay alert in the Spirit. But we also need to remember, while we're alert, while we're on guard, that actually this is not our fight. This is always God's fight. It's his battle. And if we know anything from Scripture, God always wins his battles. And we can rest in that. So stay alert. Trust in the word. Because God's already won. He's already won. Yes, the devil is coming. Yes, prepare for battle. We can't escape it. We can't avoid it. We can't defeat him in this life. Satan will relentlessly attack and seek to tempt us away from God and into sin. And our only hope, our only weapon are the the same ones that we see with Christ right here in this passage. The Spirit of God and the Word of God. That's what we have. God's already won. We just have to follow His battle plan. Be filled with the Spirit. Speak the Word. Stay alert. And you can win. Some of you, there's some temptation you've been fighting for years. And you've almost given up because you think you can't win. 
You think you can't win, but you can. Follow the Spirit. Trust in the Word. God will win. Stay with me. Let's pray.